Are you ha having the session that you thought you would? Are you finding a groove in your practice? Finding a wave to ride? Some way to yoke yourself? Some point of clarity? Some place of stability? To orient you? To serve as a guidepost, or just to tether yourself in a deep, wordless way. Do you feel spaciousness setting in? Deep silence? Luminosity. What keeps you going? What's the wind in your sails? Is it the energy of love, determination? Curiosity, wonder, the bird chirping. What if maybe you could ease up a bit in your practice, start to ease up on the helm, let the ship sail itself a little bit more? You might want to experiment with that at this stage. Easing up doesn't mean disengaging. It doesn't mean just letting your mind be blown about and be distracted. The ship still has its structure. The mast is raised. Alertness, focus, constancy, curiosity, aliveness, These are still vital elements, but you may find that you're getting to a threshold where the intensity of the effort can be softened a bit.
So while you are doing that, I'm going to talk. And you can let the words just be part of that wind in your sails, just another factor in the weather. Nothing to be grasped, nothing to be held on to or believed or disbelieved or analyzed. Just let the ship sail, let the ship be sailed by the sea. Your cognitive capacities will continue to function, I hope. Your information processing system, the words will mix with your particular conditioning and your faculties, and that'll happen all on its own. You might perceive that as words written in water. written and then gone, disappeared. No stick. And who is the one who is hearing all of this? Who is the one who's taking it all in, so to speak? Keep shining that light. And hopefully all of this is helpful. It may be that with the long hours of sitting in silence, we can lose track of what we're doing. And at a certain point, of course, that's necessary and good. But there's also a kind of murkiness that we can drift into, just kind of vague, indistinct, floating. We're not really engaged, not really correcting errors. So it may be helpful to have an occasional influx of communication or just an activation of your mind to orient, to provide some structure, to remind you of why you're here, help to provide some direction and hopefully to arouse your inspiration. So let's come back to Bodhidharma's teaching on accepting adversity. There's so much to unpack in this teaching.
right away, it's a bit of a paradox, isn't it? Accepting adversity. That's the whole point about adversity, that it's adverse, that we find it unacceptable. It's not what we want. So we don't accept it, and yet Bodhidharma says, accept. This is a profound and powerful transformational principle and a way of practicing, a way of being. It's central to all the tantric and alchemical traditions. And the principle is that exactly the poison that you're tasting is the medicine. Now, how, how can this be? Many of us have heard this teaching many times in many different contexts, in many different forms. Sometimes it takes the form of the instruction to see into the, into the nature of the obstacle, to recognize that it's fundamentally empty, spacious, pure, pure radiance. It liberates itself. It has no substance. So there's nothing to be afraid of. And sometimes the teaching is to recognize that what might be difficult and painful is actually here to wake you up is actually here to transform you. If you soften and open up to the energy of the experience, then we can be transformed. Another way that teaching appears is that this experience, this challenge, is something you'll learn from. It will season you. It will help you to mature. It will empower you to help others based on your experience. There are many other levels to the teaching. There's a very direct version of this teaching, which takes the form of a practice called reverse meditation.
It's called Reverse Meditation by Andrew Holacek, who's a teacher in the Kagyu lineage of Tibetan Buddhism. And it's his distillation of some aspects of the Bardo teachings of of the Tibetan tradition. And he offers some instructions to inflict minor physical pain on yourself, like pinch your arm uh, or something that causes discomfort in the moment. Hold your breath. It could be different. It is different for different people. But the most direct way to do the practice is just feel exactly what's troubling you right now. Feel exactly what's troubling you right now and make that the meditation. So right now, exactly what you regard as the problem the element of your experience that is not acceptable, that shouldn't be there, that that you want to go away. Right now, be completely one with that thing, that experience, whatever that is, right now. We can't really say that this practice is easy or that it's hard. The more we do it, though, it can shift our perspective. Just reorient us fundamentally in that way. It's probably helpful sometimes for us just to maintain connection with the world, to keep a sane and realistic perspective, also to imagine what if really bad stuff was happening? What if, what if I was really facing a difficult situation? What if there was some kind of extreme suffering? And maybe there is, but if we're in a time where we're fortunate enough not to have that kind of extreme adversity, we might want to remember that that's always possible. And just to reflect on that. Sometimes I practice the remembering of death, the memento mori. What if I were to die right now? 
And then what does my practice become? And it, it puts you right in it. The urgency, the imperative to practice. Like we're in a burning building or we're on fire. Many mystics and sages and spiritual adepts throughout the ages in our Euro-American history have actually been burned. So this kind of exercise can be a test of our practice. It can keep us real. And we can see just, what am I holding in my practice? How much, how much can I hold? So that reflection can be useful when applied intelligently. But the basic principle is always applicable that whatever I'm rejecting right now, because I don't want to feel it, I can shift my relationship to that. I can embrace that. Sometimes that's a subtle shift, and the change is felt immediately sometimes it feels like something big is required. And sometimes it just feels very difficult to do that. I found that what enables me to open up to this kind of practice is connecting with my core aspiration, connecting with my deepest intention, my truest intention, The most difficult experiences call that forth. And if we connect with that intention, so much more becomes possible. Maybe anything becomes possible. In any case, our life becomes possible becomes much more possible with that. If my heart is set with conviction and faith on the good, then any hardship, any circumstance can be embraced within the path. That circumstance, circumstance because, becomes a manifestation of goodness. It becomes bodhisattva energy. It becomes even a gift. And if we can open up that perspective, it takes us out of our story. It takes us out of our self-centered judgment and our constant scorekeeping 
how is this going for me? Good, bad, I like it, I don't like it. Not to punish ourselves for that, but there's more. There's more to reality. And this opens us up. Whatever we're holding on to, the fear of losing it, softens. So when we do that, we're connecting with reality. I think that's why gratitude and forgiveness are such powerful practices, and there's a lot of research showing how effective they are in improving people's overall quality of life, psychological well-being, benefits on many levels. But these practices, gratitude, forgiveness, they open us up to reality. And these are ways of practicing accepting adversity. Bodhidharma's practices of gratitude and forgiveness. The universe doesn't exist in its own nature in terms of how it's working out for me. That's not how things really are. It's a very restricted view. And the judgments that I make, they don't correspond to how things are ultimately or how things are on a larger scale. Gratitude, forgiveness, The best way to do these practices is in the here and now. So what is it right now that is alive, whatever it is? Basically, this is the reverse meditation. Approaching it in terms of gratitude and forgiveness is a helpful way in. But basically the practice is, oh, this thing that I'm pushing away, I could have a different relationship with this. So what in your experience right now is a problem. Notice your aversion, your resistance. Maybe there's hatred, rage. And then what is the formation, the sensation, the experience, the thing that you're trying to expel 
and then open up to gratitude. Open up to saying yes to this. Open up to being filled by this, a sense of fullness, the great fullness, this experience, receiving this experience. Let yourself be opened up. Let it be the medicine. Let it be the gift. Let it be the Buddha's gift. Let it heal you. Let it be you. We can do this with forgiveness. Forgiveness doesn't have to be about a a personal conflict or some kind of past moral violation. Whatever is a perceived wrong or a violation of any kind, whatever seems a burden, whatever feels like a karmic knot, or a bit of baggage, trauma, sour grapes, something left over from the past. What does it feel like right now? Is there a sense of stuckness, a a sense of guardedness? Fixed? Now, what does it feel like to let go, to forgive? means to let go of the burden, to release the tension. To truly say that it's all right.
take it slow. It's okay. Try it. Try it. Everything can just be released back into the ocean, back into the boundless equality of all things. What does it feel like to start fresh right now, to be fresh, to be free of that burden? Like a newborn child. This Zen thing, it turns out, is actually quite human. Perhaps more so than you thought. And perhaps more so than you still think. After quite a few years of doing this, I'm just starting to realize that this practice is only going to work at all if every part of me gets involved, and perhaps especially the parts that I try to defend or that want to hold back, that want to hide, or claim some other alibi in life to be somewhere else, to have some other story about what life's about, not the awakening bodhisattva compassion story. So what is this humanness? When I hear that question, I always think of Rumi's poem, The Guest House. which I'm not going to read or recite, but hopefully most of you remember that. This being human is like a guest house. And we just welcome and welcome and welcome and welcome and welcome. But perhaps even more deeply, what is the nature of this, being human? I want to read from Bodhidharma's teaching on the practice of adapting to conditions. And this is the totality of Bodhidharma's teaching on adapting to conditions in this text from the Dunhuang Caves. Uh, 
And it's the second of the four practices that he presents in this text. Second is the practice of adapting to conditions. Sentient beings are without a self, being steered by karmic conditions. Suffering and joy are experienced together as a result of causes and conditions. Any reward, blessing, or honor is a consequence of past causes and is gone when the necessary conditions are exhausted. So what is there to be joyful about? Knowing that success and failure depend on conditions, the mind neither gains nor loses, remaining unmoved by the winds of joy. This is to be in harmony with the way. Therefore, it is called the practice of adapting to conditions. I'll read it again. Second is the practice of adapting to conditions. Sentient beings are without a self, being steered by karmic conditions. Suffering and joy are experienced together as a result of causes and conditions. Any reward, blessing, or honor is a consequence of past causes and is gone when the necessary conditions are exhausted. So what is there to be joyful about? Knowing that success and failure depend on conditions, the mind neither gains nor loses, remaining unmoved by the winds of joy. This is to be in harmony with the way. Therefore, it is called the practice of adapting to conditions. This is a reflection on conditioned reality. It's a very profound meditation. Everything is just conditions. Everything is arising, reconfiguring. There's no thing. Everything is just these passing relationships can't be reproduced, can't be sustained, can't be defined, and yet indelible. It's all there is. It's just so. It's suchness. It's just what is. So it goes this. So there's not anything that can be separated out. If you like, it's all one thing. So this non-separateness and the conditioned nature of reality come together. It's not some pure, exalted state that is non-separation. It's this changing, flowing, entangled web of conditions that is non-separation. Non-self, pure, 
infinite, unobstructed. In the story of the Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama is presented as recognizing the futility of any pursuit of happiness that is dependent on conditions. Anything that is subject to birth and death, he says, is not a worthy object of pursuit and leads to suffering. And he is driven by the quest for what is not conditioned, the pursuit of Nibbana, I have always found this very compelling, this idea of an unconditioned reality, true peace beyond birth and death. Is this not the basis for the whole Buddhist tradition and maybe for the spiritual quest altogether? Are we not here? to be free from birth and death, to be free from samsara, to be free from suffering, to be free from dukkha. So what is this unconditioned reality that we seek? when I was talking before about aspiration and bodhicitta and how we can meet adversity and open to it, wasn't I talking about something unconditional? An aspiration or an intention or a vow that can hold anything? in all conditions, can meet anything. Where does this come from? Where does this vow come from, this great vow? Where is it? Where is it originating? What could an unconditioned reality even be? If it exists independent of conditions, then how could it ever be reached or accessed? What would it even mean for it to exist? if not in relationship with other things, which is to say conditions. Can it be perceived? Can it be experienced? Wouldn't it then be conditioned by the experiencer, by the perceiver? 
Is this the no thing that be Dharma says to seek? These are questions to ponder in deep silence. And don't get fooled into thinking that you have to figure something out. Buddha awakening is what matters, and all this babbling comes after the fact. Trust this awakening. Trust your awakening. Trust Bodhidharma. Be Dharma. Trust that you have everything you need. Thank you.